0: Hello, my name is Will Spencer and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast, a place for extended, in-depth discussions about the rebirth of masculinity happening around the world today. My guest this week is a husband, father, attorney, Turning Point USA board member, and the author of the book, Good Kills, Pastor David Engelhart.
1: This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, Men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the renaissance of men you are the renaissance
2: you know there was a time um in the life of jesus and this is recorded in every one of the synoptic gospels that jesus is doing his ministry he's healing the sick he's telling these incredible parables He's declaring to the world that the kingdom of God is at hand. So turn from the way you've been doing things and turn toward this kingdom way. And uh, he's ministering. He's speaking. He's, he's touching the poor and the broken. And he's exhausted. And he says to his boys, hey, let's jump in the boat and cross the Sea of Galilee and go to the other side. And so they jump in the boat and, and they're all going across and um, Jesus falls asleep in the back of the boat. And it's a pretty famous story. I mean, it's famous for a number of reasons. One, that it's recorded in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, but also because um, it's one of those stories that on the face, when you look at the initial story, um, Jesus sleeping in the midst of a storm is a bizarre idea. And that's really the context of the story is that Jesus gets in the boat, he falls asleep, they get out into the middle of the sea, and a squall breaks loose and falls down upon their heads. And for some bizarre reason, with a storm raging around them, Jesus is sleeping on a pillow in the stern or the back of the boat. And you think, well, what does that mean? So they... they, wake him up they shake him up and they say jesus you got to help us please he yells at the storm the storm stops they freak out and they go over to the other side of the land and if you're you know if you're from our cultural perspective you listen to a story like that and you say well that's a bizarre fairy tale why would that ever happen ah you wanted to make your god seem like he was powerful and like he can control the world okay But but it's more than a a story with an analysis that's that shallow, that God's around, if you shake him up, he'll stop all the bad stuff in your life. It's deeper than that. It's more complex than that. And it's way more profound than that. Because Jesus is in the boat and he gets out onto the sea. And in in, in Mark uh, chapter 4, it says this, it says, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. Which is a really interesting point on this story, that there are other boats or other witnesses, or other individuals that are also out on the sea, but Jesus is not in their boats, right? So there's other people that are seemingly crossing the sea, following Jesus, this great miracle worker, this great teacher of this time, this revolutionary that was moving through the midst of the people and people wanted to be near him. So there were other boats that followed along and they were with him. And I'm looking at this picture and I'm seeing... The disciples, the followers of Jesus, I'm seeing Jesus, I'm seeing the sea, and I'm seeing the storm. And and I'm saying, what, what do all these things represent? What do they mean? What are we looking at in this picture? And we have this picture of the sea, which is iconically a picture of chaos, the unknown, the unformed, the unfathomed, that you're not sure what's going to happen. And you're moving in your boat through life, asking the question, will I make it to the other side? And the boat is not a thing of nature. It's neither storm nor sea. It's this man-made construct that these disciples are in. And, and what is that? I, it seems to be at least partially a picture of our life that when we're moving through our life, which is often unknown, and we have this construct that we've created that we're living in, and the storm comes, that thing no longer is sufficient to take me where I need to go. So unless I call on God himself, I'm done for. And that seems like one picture that the story is telling. But if you know the the historical context of the story, you know that at least a number of the disciples are actually fishermen. And um, Peter and James were fishermen on this sea. So they're super familiar with the sea. They're super familiar with the weather patterns. And if they're so scared that they think they're going to die, this is a very dangerous storm. And it says here in Mark chapter 4, Verse 38, but he was in the stern, Jesus, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Love that. That their, Their primary response is why doesn't God care? And that seems to me the the, the agnostic or the atheistic kind of conception when we have bad things happen on the earth whether it's war or cancer or storm or whatever this perspective is God doesn't care and if there was a God he would care Uh, uh, what's the deal and the perspective of man in in the face of storms is to say God why don't you care.
0: I know sometimes it doesn't seem like it, but it's an incredible time to be alive. As you've heard me say before, I've been studying masculinity for 20 years. I've also been studying world religions and spirituality for 30 years. This journey took me from a very non- and even anti-Christian life to the place I am today, kind of the polar opposite. Those two completely independent journeys have dovetailed in a pretty startling way, at least to me. Because when I set out exploring what it meant to be a man, I didn't expect that quest to lead me to God. And when I set out to understand God, I for sure didn't expect that quest to lead me to what it means to be a man. So if you ever wonder why I'm so excited to be Christian and talk about Christianity, it's because Christianity represents the confluence of two defining rivers of my life, I have been preoccupied with questions about masculinity and God for longer than I've been thinking about literally anything else. I can even look at the posters I had on the walls of my room as a boy and see those questions reflected in nascent form in my choice of wall decor. Imagine how thrilled you would be if two of your biggest existential questions had the same answer. Now here's the cool part. I'm not the only person who's been asking questions about masculinity. There's a whole movement about it. Which I call the Renaissance. They're discovering Christianity now, too. Some don't like it, but it's happening anyway. And you know what's even cooler? As you know, if you've been listening to my podcast, Christians are rediscovering masculinity. But as far as I can tell, that process is going even less smoothly than its counterpart. The reasons why are complicated. The feminization that's afflicted American men has done so in the church as well, and that affliction goes all the way up to the top. Which I believe is the true source of the problem. Because what sets Christian men apart from secular men is that a Christian man has two men in his everyday life he's meant to look up to his father and his pastor. If a man's father is absent, his pastor is feminized, and the media saturates him with the same anti male messages the rest of us get, a Christian man gets three doses, or boosters, haha, of poison that a secular man gets two of so it's a much bigger problem but you know what the advantage of a bigger problem is when you solve it you get a bigger payoff so we can't bring christian men's fathers back but we can help them find brothers and by now with the proliferation of christian media every christian listening to this man or woman should delete their netflix account and sign up for canon plus apologia studios and more that leaves one last element of support for christian men the pastor I'm excited to witness the number of masculine evangelical Christian pastors stepping up to heed the call. Men like my pastor, Jeff Durbin, and the elders of Apologia Church, as well as Doug Wilson, Toby Sumter, Jared Longshore, Paul Washer, Vody Bauckham, Joe Boot, Michael Foster, Brian Salve, John MacArthur, and many others. But as much masculine Christian content as I consume, one book in the genre has affected me more than almost any other this year. Which brings me to my guest this week. His name is David Engelhart, and he's a husband, father, lawyer, and author of the new book, Good Kills, God, Good, and the Sword. He's also the pastor of King's Church in New York City, and if you can think of a tougher American city to be a pastor in during a more challenging decade, I'd love to hear it. But as you might imagine, those tests and trials have forged him, as our trials do for all of us. And they've forged him into one of the boldest, most outspoken preachers I've been blessed to encounter. The word that comes to mind is bellicose, which the Oxford Dictionary defines as demonstrating aggression and willingness to fight. And I hope you'd agree that we need much more of that fighting spirit in Christendom for the times that are up ahead. Which brings us back to masculinity Christian men need examples from their leaders, their pastors, about not just when, where, and why to fight but how? With poise, passion, and proper posture, and dare I say, even a hint of poetry. All those and more are in Pastor David's book, Good Kills, which is why it had the impact on me that it did, and why I recommend it. Because, as you'll hear, Pastor David is a true fighter, and if you are too, or if you want to be, have I got the pastor for you. In our conversation, David and I discussed an historical survey of fatherlessness, the horror of the destruction of the patriarchy, why a man needs to tend his garden, women, modesty, and sensuality, the definition of a fool, denominational battles within the church, and finally the book of Revelation and how it applies to post-millennialism. If you enjoy the Renaissance of Men podcast, thank you. Please take a minute to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and a rating on Spotify. And if you're watching this on YouTube, don't forget to hit that like button and subscribe. Also, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Ren of Men, or subscribe to my mailing list by visiting my website at renofmen.com newsletter. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce this week's guest on the Renaissance of Men podcast, the pastor of King's Church in New York City, and the author of Good Kills, Pastor David Engelhart. Pastor David Engelhart, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast.
3: Great to be on, Will. Excited chatting here.
0: Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. So I'm going to be super transparent about what I hope to accomplish with this podcast. I would like everyone listening to this podcast by the end of it to be fully convinced they need to go to Amazon and buy a copy of your book, Good Kills. Because this is probably, uh, it's definitely one of the best books I've read about masculine Christianity this past year. And it's probably one of the best ones that I've ever read. And I think it's a subject that's up for so many men, <laughs> excuse me, trying to understand how can we square Christianity with masculinity because it absolutely needs to happen because we're seeing um, American culture overrun. We're seeing Christian culture overrun, Christian churches, and men are looking for places to push back from and stand up. And I think you lay out a really good case for some ways to think about it that could be yeah. very powerful for some men.
4: Yeah, great.
3: We, what, you want to jump right in?
0: Jump in, man. Jump in. I make the most of the time
3: you know i just think i was was just thinking about the 1950s um because our problems are not our own right our problems are our fathers our, our, our problems are their fathers our problems um are magnified now i mean the fatherlessness all of that chaos we can talk about stats and how horrific you know those conditions are but we have to start you know we have, to have, we have to have a historical context and a historical lens to, to say, when did fathers really begin to be hated in the United yeah. States of America? When did we decide that the patriarchy was a bad idea? When did we decide that manhood itself was something to be, you know, was some great evil? And it appears to me that we had the, uh, you know, the Great War of World War II and that men were celebrated on their way home. And then yeah. they came home in the 50s and um, there was a time of really incredible affluence for our nation. And affluence can be a blessing or it can be a curse. Uh, and that's, I mean, those, those, that's fundamental. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble.
1: Mm-hmm. And
3: if we allow affluence to create pride, Um, and distance between our father, you know, fathers and sons, and all this kind of stuff. And, um, then you get, then you get, uh, uh, you know, children that rate that are that that kind of grow up with it with a hatred for father because of the distance there, because of the lack of affection, because of the you know, not understanding how to kiss your boys. You know, that's that's a book I should write one day, Kiss Your Boys. Um, because there's beauty, there's beauty and affection, like kiss your boys and then teach them how to gut a deer and, and shoot a bad guy intruder. Right. So it's yeah. like, there's, there's affection, there's love, there's beauty. There's not this kind of cold hearted thing. But academia just, I mean, academia, the world, of academia created an environment, um, that attacked the patriarchy because they saw the idea of the nuclear family as something that was limiting to the, the, the um, progress of not just America, but humanity in general. So, and the idea is like, if you can break, if you can take a family and you, instead of just a dad working, but a mom and a dad are working together, um, then you increase means of production. And so Marxist societies, I don't know if you know this, but like Marxist societies, they always want low child count and, and both parents working full time for the government for for the system because in, in socialism or marxism the definition of that is that government controls the means of production and mm-hmm. that and they're usually bad at it and you, they're usually inefficient and so they want as many po- people in that game of working all the time and so they diminish motherhood they diminish fatherhood they diminish the roles of the family and then in the '60s we have this anti-war movement, and the anti-war movement is associated with not just anti-war, but anti-sword, and anti-father, yeah. anti-protection, and I don't need you because I can protect myself. Uh, you know, there's so many elements. Will I mean one of them is the some people call it technocracy. Like yeah. I now have technology, I don't need father anymore. I don't mm-hmm. need. The, the warring, scary, angry man to defend me. I can defend myself. I now have technology and we have these, you know, nuclear bombs. We have all kinds of stuff that changes the playing field. And so we can, we can, uh, we can experiment with the fundamental family structure and the, and experimentation almost always begins with the, with the displacement of father. And then when father is displaced, the family falls apart. So I've been talking to guys about racism the last couple of, of weeks Mm -hmm. i was at a pastor's conference i just flew back last night and then the week before i was at another pastor's conference And i've been talking about guys about racism and systemic racism in particular and i say i believe in systemic racism just i don't believe in it like you believe in it (laughs) i believe that the welfare system is racist systemically because i know based upon thomas cole's research that in the 1960s late 1969 and early 70s there were government workers that were going around with clipboards and saying, "If I come back and there's not a dad here and you're single, we will give you money."
4: Mm-hmm. So
3: the government incentivized
4: yeah.
3: fatherlessness. They incentivized single motherhood, and so we have, you know, crime that increased like a 10x in all of these communities, all of these impo- these poorer communities, and and then it's like, well, it's racism as the problem. It's like, yeah, that's correct. You think black people are poor and stupid and evil and they need your help. And without your help, they can't succeed. And you hate them. <laughs>
1: yeah. You don't
3: know it, but functionally you hate them. And so you've incentivized fatherlessness. And so now we have this, you know, it's 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 policy that hates father. It says your dad is not a man enough to take care of his home. He yeah. doesn't have what it takes. You need me to step in, you need my degree. And my wisdom and my all this kind of stuff. I'm like, I am like, I do believe in systemic racism. Not like you think it is, this mm-hmm. kind of amorphous ghost flying through the universe. I think it's welfare programs that destroy and incentivize poor communities. And I've seen it. I mean, our church is in a project community in New York City. We see it oh. all the time. And so, I mean, fatherlessness is a now issue. Of course it is. Uh, but it's the product of generations of problems and the, and the ultimate, you know, uh, solution is always in Christ, which is repent for the kingdom of heaven at hand. You know, it's in Mark. It's one of my favorite verses. I always yell at other pastors for this because I'm like, you guys always say the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but you don't say repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mm-hmm. And then that you don't bring the kingdom of heaven. You bring the kingdom of hell when you forget the repent part mm-hmm. because they'll stay in their hell unless they change and follow God's way, you know? It's like you get this eternal forgiveness of sin stuff, but the temporal world is changed by our action. That's why all through Revelation, Jesus says, I know your deeds. He doesn't say, I know your heart. He doesn't say, I know your intention. He doesn't say, I know your feelings. He says, I know how you act. And, um, and if we can get men to take responsibility and act di- different and bear their cross and bear the load, and work hard and come home sweaty and kiss their wives you know, and love their children and lay down in, in their beds, they would feel incredible. They'd feel amazing. God designed the, the human body to respond to righteousness. He also respond, designed it to respond to sin. So it's like, oh, I'm depressed and I'm addicted and I'm like, i seven different prescriptions and I, I have a masturbation issue and I don't, get, I, I come to work late and I leave early and I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm too insecure to be, you know, uh, to talk with my wife, honestly, and I'm. I was like, yeah, correct. Sin causes pain. Get yeah, correct. Congratulations, you've discovered <laughs> the basics of the of the universe. Congratulations. That's a good intro.
0: That was amazing. That was I, this. The smile on my face is genuine because you touched on. <laughs> All the topics that, all the topics that I love, like we did a historical survey, you know, we did a contemporary survey, we talked about systemic racism and politics, and we end up in Christ and repentance and, you know, wife and kid, like touchdown, spike the football, walk off the field. <laughs> uh, let's see, where do I want to, okay. So I, 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 the, the first thread that I want to pull out of there that I think is really important is that, um this problem that we're facing of masculinity is so complex and so old that there's no one silver bullet issue that you can look all the way back to the 1940s and the 1950s and say, it starts there. And that's just the beginning. So I think that when people talk about, this is something that I've been spending a lot of time trying to understand, because when we look at the crisis of masculinity, it's not enough to say like, um, oh, it's just fatherlessness. Like, yes, it's fatherlessness, but why, why is it fatherlessness? Right. Go ahead.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, just to, just cause it's in my mind, I'll, 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 I'll go back to the why it's fatherlessness in a second, but to answer this thing in my mind is like, there are so many elements. Yeah. I mean, live in his seminal work, Iron John, have you read that one? That's of just course. An incredible, incredible book. I mean, it should, that's so, I mean, that should stir the heart of man. I I, I talk to guys all the time about his, his piece in there about man loving mud, right? Like man being created for the mud, like just so beautiful. Like boys for the history of, of the world love mud. They love to play in mud. They love the dirty and the gross and the filthy, and they love to create things out of mud, you know? And it's like. This stamp of the image of God, which is the dust of the earth, and he breathes life into the dust of the earth. And it doesn't become like a house or a car. It doesn't become an inanimate object. It becomes this life-giving, life-bearing replication of who he is, which is this idea that when we breathe into people, when they get really the essence of who we are when they're around us, living and being with us, like we replicate inside of other people. And mm-hmm. there's a part, part of the book that, was like, that says that. It's like God's breath is replete with seed. And so when he breathes, his life is, you know, instantiated into others. We start responding in some way that's like him. Real men can do that. Real men have substance and force of being that when you get around them, you're enlivened. You feel stronger. And that's that's another thing that says, Bly, William Bly? Robert
4: Bly.
3: Yeah, Robert Bly, sorry. The, The brown ooze, right? like just getting around men he says creates this substance he calls it the brown ooze because he's trying to make it gross because he says men like gross things which is beautiful Mm. but that's the same idea it's like it's it feeds some kind of deep strength in men if they can be if not like if they can be authentic and humble and humble doesn't mean doesn't mean pathetic it just means Mm. like i don't need to flex in front of you unless i need to unless i need to flex like i don't need to show you how strong I am unless a bad guy comes and then I'm going to eat his heart out of his chest. Like I, I don't need to do that because we're all in the company of men. We don't need to. Uh, anyway, um, let's jump back to why, like why the order, you know, there's something about the order that, that we're just, we're so confused about in our culture. And so when I do our next steps class, we call it King's course. It's like how to become a member of King's church. Mm-hmm. One of the there's a few issues that are really sensitive, and I really hit because if you don't if you don't agree with this tenet of our theology, I just say like there's eight thousand other churches in New York City. Please go to another one because I'm not you know like I'm like it's great you can disagree with me. Go to another church because I'm not representing me. I'm representing the Scripture, and one of these is male governance, right? And one of these issues is that Jesus chose twelve men. He did not choose six men and six women right and he didn't even choose 10 men and then two women that were kind of masculine he didn't do Mm -hmm. that he expressly chose 12 men to establish his governance on and i always say it, and i say to our people at church i'm like doesn't mean you're lesser in value because i think i think and I, i could be wrong here but i think that the feminine the female is of greater value but I think that doesn't mean that the masculine is not the leader. He's the one that takes the shots. He's the one that carries the burdens. He's the one that's supposed to be honored because of this contrarian value thing that we have set up in the kingdom of God. And here's the, here's the deal. I, I think I say this in Good Kills, but like God takes man and he has dust and he breathes into man, he creates man, but then he takes from man and then he refines it again and he creates woman. And in, in, in nature, in our world, in, our, com, in our, you know, our commercial world, all, well, I should say it this way, from nature to our commercial world, all refined things are more valuable. There is nothing in the world mm-hmm. that is less valuable after it's refined. So from dust, man is, re- man is refined by the breath of God. But then from Adam's rib, female is refined, and that makes her more valuable. But even though she's more valuable, she's more delicate. And so when you take the more delicate and you make that person the leader in charge because man is abdicating his role which is what he did in the garden of eden to some degree um then the, then the universe breaks and so it's like we have like you know Madison cawthorne running for um congress he just got booted i think this last round but he's mm-hmm. like a 20 year old in congress and you're like you're really young to be in congress because of how corrupt our country is you have to be in congress it seems to me that the scripture seems to indicate that when a nation is under the judgment of God, young people and women are the leaders. That's, that, that seems to be the case. And I could give you the scripture references there. And it's not because, it's because they're righteous. It's because the young women and, excuse me, the, the ladies and the young men are righteous. And it's because the men have abdicated their role as self-sacrificing agents. And we have politicians that are, um, you know, they're wicked. They're just wicked people. So God puts man in charge because when you're talking about refined things and the secondary thing being more refined but more fragile, the primary thing is less fragile, right? Mm -hmm. The the dust is less fragile than man, right? Dust is very Mm non-fragile. Man is much more fragile. Man can, you know, die and it's game over. Female is more fragile than male right? So God puts the stronger thing as the protector of the more fragile thing. And this more fragile thing, which is female, produces life and produces life in multiplicity, not just times one, but times two and three and four and five and six and seven and eight. And you can have, you know, you can have one guy and a thousand girls and you can have an incredible amount of human beings that are produced. You can't have you know, one girl and a thousand guys. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, we all die if that happens. Mm-hmm. We're all dead. And so, God's plan is that the stronger thing, the more, you know, the more anti-fragile thing protects the other thing that's of more value. And we can think about this in the human body. The heart has a massive value, which is why it's encapsulated by my ribs.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And say one rib is less valuable. That's right. It's much stronger than the heart, right? Samson didn't take a heart and kill a bunch of Philistines, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. He
3: took the jawbone of a donkey and slayed them. It's a much heartier and stronger thing. That's what men are. And if we lose the structural significance of men, man, we lose society and the wolves come and kill us all. And that's, the, that's really the plan of the, the devil. That's the plan of the left, unbeknownst to them, because they're just idiots, um, is to destroy father, and then the wolves come in and consume us all.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and um, what's, even, what's even more fragile, you know, dust is, dust is anti-fragile, men, is, men are more fragile than dust, women are more fragile than men, and children are more fragile than women, right? Yeah. That's the created order, right? and and yeah. i agree and i agree with you that um that women might be more valuable i think there's a saying floating around in the men's space that um eggs are expensive and sperm is cheap right that's another that's another kind of thing but but men still men still are the thing and men are also uh, dr warren farrell talks about in his book uh, the myth of male power how men have been disposable throughout time like we die by the millions in warfare and we're you know when when we hear that the something something go bump in the night like the man gets up and go down, goes downstairs to check because the man is disposable versus yeah. women and children first. Like all these things show up in our society. And yet we have this inverse notion. We have this Marxist, I think it's ultimately a Marxist conception of power that says yes. power can only be measured in terms of like your material influence, whether it be physical strength or money or accomplishments or whether history remembers you and have no concept of moral or emotional power at all. And yeah. so we're living in Marxism, whether we, whether we know it or not.
3: Hundred percent. And there's an interesting thing you were just mentioning, like that—that that hierarchy of value going down. Because every ch- every parent will say my baby is more valuable than me, mm-hmm. right? The most fragile thing in the whole world. Even the older siblings will say the baby is more valuable than me, right? Because the potential of its yeah. life. That's just how God stamped our hearts to be. And it's also interesting that the baby knows the least, and oh, wow. we a converse society that says, you know, I don't even know if you're a boy or girl. I'm going to wait till you can talk to tell me. And it's like, no, 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 no. The stronger makes the construct. That's a part of who they are. That's part of the stronger. They make the construct of behavior. And that's why men have been called to lead the house. I'll tell you the story is, um, when I was 20, let's say 25, my wife and I moved into a new city and, um, we i was going to be a youth pastor and she was going to do just wait tables and we were going to you know live ministry life kind of and figure it out from there and she got a job at a really high-end the high-end restaurant of the of the valley and it was like a new york times rated incredible place in washington state and we're hanging out one day and she tells me hey you know M- uh the manager who'd been in restaurant world for 40 years just got fired and they're looking for a new manager of this restaurant. And she, my wife was 21 at the time. And I said, you need to apply for the job. And she's like, I'm not gonna do it, I'm not gonna do it. And I'm like, I, I pulled the husband card. This is a couple of times, you know, I'm hard, hardly ever do I pull this I'm the husband kind of card. Mm. It was this moment I was like, Bethany, like we need to look at the scripture. I'm the husband and God put made me the priest of the home. And I want you. I'm. I'm not asking you. I'm telling you to go apply for this job. And it wasn't for me. It was because I really felt compelled that she needed to do it. So she went and applied for the job. And she called me up on the way home, and she's crying on the phone. And I'm like, "What's what's wrong?" And she's like,
4: "The interview went amazing, and I don't want
3: the job." She was scared that she didn't have what it took to get the job. Long story short, they hired her. She got paid insanely well, and this guy that was, the, that was the business owner, had owned a bunch of banks internationally, he said that she was the best manager that he ever had in his, his entire career, and he was like 70 years old. She ended up running the business, increasing the sales revenue by 20% in the first year, and learning, like crushing, learning about herself, and then we started having kids and all this kind of stuff, and she transitioned out of there. But it was so good for her to say, you're right. The Bible does say husbands obey your or excuse me, wives, obey your husbands. Yeah. Husbands, lay down your life for your wives. And that, that scriptural balance creates incredible beauty. Now, for tyrant husbands, it doesn't mm-hmm. create beauty. Um, and for wives that are evil and rebellious, like we, we all sin. It creates chaos when we don't actually submit in our heart to the scripture. But when we do it, it can be incredible. If we, fall. you know, it's simple. God's pattern creates life and beauty. like We rejection of God's pattern creates pain and death. That's just how it's gone for the history of the
0: universe. Mm-hmm. And the important part of of that submission, uh, because I talk about this a lot, because when I when I bring up and and, and men in my community bring up the notion of submission, is like, oh, what about what about the tyrant husband and and the way that gets checked is the tyrant husband is actually, he has to submit as well. He submits to yeah. his pastor, he submits to Christ. And so, yeah. you know, he has authority over him. Like, yeah, he's the authority over her, but he has authority over him that he's mm-hmm. accountable to. So you can't just, you can't just like become the tyrant. Otherwise you're, you're accountable before God. You're t- accountable before Christ. You're accountable for your community, potentially even as well. And, and if I could just throw one thing in, I, I often, I often add this point. Men are so atomized and separated and individualized from each other that back in in the day, men used to have a circle of brothers around them all the time, all the time. And if a man, if a bunch of guys are sitting together and one walks in and and a man gives his his wife a snide comment or that's just really out of line, like uh, one of his brothers would take him aside like, don't you ever talk to your wife in, 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 uh, in front of me like that again? Don't you yeah. ever do that again, or you're going to have yeah. me to answer to, but we don't have yeah. that anymore. Like, oh, I don't want to get involved, you know, it's mm-hmm. whatever. And, and so men used to be accountable to their fathers, men used to be accountable to their brothers, and they used to be accountable to God. And we have none yeah. of that accountability anymore. And it's one of the reasons why men have no external structure supporting them against their own internal brokenness.
3: Yeah. And that's where the virtues come in, right? The virtue of courage, like the virtue of courage without which no other virtues exist. You're, not, mm. you're afraid to be courageous if you i mean courage is the fuel of all of these other virtues to be applied yes i was remember again i was in my 20s mid-20s and i was hanging out with a guy and we were playing guitar together and we were just kind of becoming friends he was a little bit older than me he's probably in his mid-30s and he said david i just want you to know something as we're kind of building this friendship like this is like a pre-friendship conversation i I'd never had one of these before <laughs> he said if you ever say anything negative about my wife, if you ever criticize my wife, I will not only will this friendship uh, be over, but there will be severe retribution by me. And I was like, whoa, whoa, like, that's a lot. Like set the, the fence around his home. Now, I had no intention of saying anything negative about his wife. His wife is phenomenal, but he was a protector, he was a guardian, he was someone that wasn't afraid. to to establish the borders around his home. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, not that I would have, but you could bet your butt that I was never going to say
0: anything. Right, after that point?
3: Demeaning about his wife. Uh, Another point on the demeaning stuff is like, my wife and I did a kind of a bizarre dating thing. We did this courtship. We did a courtship model, which is, you know, an archaic term that means the parents are very involved. And my father-in-law was very involved in establishing rules and making sure, like, you know, we weren't getting too involved until it was time to get engaged and married. And there's some really good things about courtship, and there's some really dumb things, and it's just like any tool. You can use a hammer for good or evil. It just depends how you use it. But um, before my wife and I got engaged, uh, there was an instance where we were in front of the whole family, and she was like somebody was making fun of me, and she joined in on the making fun of me
4: part. Mm.
3: She was mad at me for something something else, uh, okay. like always oh, something else. And then she like joined in and I like, we later that night, we went upstairs and I was like, I said this, I said, listen, um, we gotta have this kind of honesty in the relationship. And, but I want you to know that honor for a man is like a primary fuel. And if you ever tear me down in front of people publicly, like if you have a problem, please come and talk to me about yeah. it. But if you make me the butt of a joke and tear me down in front of people, I said, between now and the day of our wedding, I will walk away from this relationship, and it will be over. Yeah. And my wife grew up in a context where it was okay to make fun of dad. It was okay for dad to be but of the butt of a joke. And I, and I, every time I saw that, I'm like, you don't mm. get like the f- primary fuel for a man is honor. Like I don't need money. I don't need like I don't need food. I need honor. I I, I don't care if you feed me. I want to. You know what I mean. Right. I, honor and um and my wife was like okay this guy's definitely serious about this and he established the right boundaries and never i think again in our wife life maybe maybe a half a time in 18 years did she ever do anything that was even slightly on the fence because she's like this is this is a serious issue and the same thing would go for a man like you would respond that way to your bride. If she said, this thing is really damaging for how I'm wired for how my soul is. And those basic things, you know, Ephesians, it's like on the book, love and respect that I'm sure you've read. It's like men want to be respected. They have a deep drive to be respected. And, and when we say the patriarchy doesn't matter and father doesn't matter and man doesn't matter. We just, We just rip apart who they are, and then the man says, okay, well, I guess I'll be a pirate then.
4: Like, Mm -hmm. if it doesn't
3: matter, I just guess I'll be a pirate, and I'll rape and pillage wherever I go, and I'll show you I matter. If I can't can't make my home heaven, I will raise up hell, and Mm -hmm. I'll show you I have substance and worth when I bring hell to you. And that's the world we live in now.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of, um, this might be an Iron John, but I think Robert Bly definitely highlighted the quote, like, if you don't initiate the boys, they'll burn down the village to feel the warmth, right? <laughs> Same kind of thing. Or you have, or you have the flip side of that, where it's like uh, boys will just shut down and they'll hide in the basement and they won't become anything. And like voila, look at American, look at American boys now.
3: Yes, yeah, it's a challenge because um, the fake sex, fake fake war culture mm. gives them all those stimulations. Uh, Japan. Is it is a, is a hor- horrific, you know, example of this with these guys living in their houses, like yeah. never leave to get sex and war on their computer screens, and it's like, oh god, it's like, I mean, it's could could it be any more like the Matrix, where you're just plugged into a pleasure machine, outputting, you know, whatever it is, working for the cog machine on your computer? And man is made to for danger to engage with the world, and it's um, makes us stronger. And there's danger for your whole life and it makes us stronger to engage and encounter danger. And, uh, you know, it's so funny, man. I was such a, I was such a desperately insecure man in my twenties, just, mm. just debilitatingly insecure. Uh, like I was hyper into fashion uh, and I didn't know it at the time. I had no idea. I thought I was like, I'm just a creative. That's why I like fashion so much. Mm. And I realized, I was like, no, you're desperately insecure. So you You everywhere you go, you're desperate to be accepted by people and by for people to say, wow, look at how you dress. Wow, where'd you get those pants from? Wow, look how cool you are. Like that's how that's how desperate and wounded you are. And it takes pain and it takes rejection and it takes no one caring for you to realize, oh, this all stuff is all it's all worthless. Like and I have to have virtue. And if I walk in virtue before the Lord um He's made me to respond to sacrifice. He's made me to respond to hard work. And we, and we have like the video game stuff. Like we have an anti hard work culture. I told my boys literally this morning my son is going to be 14 in December. I said, Bud, we're going to turn off all video games very shortly because I only have you for four more years. And I haven't filled in you yet what I want to fill in you. And they're awesome kids, but there's like, it takes pain. You know that scripture in Jesus, uh, and he's like, buy from me gold refined in the fire, Laodicea, uh, Revelation chapter 3. And I, I remember years ago saying, Lord, what is the fire? And I just realized, like, as I've gotten older, the fire is the fire. The fire is pain men need the fire men need pain it creates something incredible if you're willing to stay in the fire and let it form you and every man that sees another man go through the fire is just like on the sideline cheering and whooping you know it's like the fire beautiful thing it equalizes all of us it you know it makes us all the same but then it then it changes all of us into hopefully you know more righteous sons of god
0: uh, Pastor James White is uh, is one of the pastors of my church here in Phoenix, and he did a, a sermon uh, a number of years ago, which I'll link in the show notes, <clears throat> called "Advice for Hurting Christians." And uh, because I guess one of the members of the church community had passed away uh, suddenly, it was before I was a member of the church, so I I, I didn't um, I don't know who the circumstances, but it was a, it was a it was a, a, a grieving sermon um, for the people who were hurting over that loss. And in this sermon, he talks about how. He borrowed this metaphor as well. He talks about like gold, like you just did, where the process of refining gold: first you heat it up to super hot temperatures, and then all the the um, impurities rise to the surface, and then you hit it with a hammer, and all the impurities and the gold remains. And he said that's that's the process of refinement for a Christian: that life Mm -hmm. heats you up, you know, the Lord heats you up to super hot temperatures; things rise to the surface to be, and then you get hit with the hammer, and the impurities come out, and that's life, and that's part of what it means to live as a man, part of what it means to live as a Christian. And so I'm, I'm, and I just heard that sermon for the first time a couple of days ago. So I'm grateful that you mentioned that because those thoughts have been on my mind as well with some of the trials we've been going through collectively and some of the ones <laughs> I've been going through personally.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is that, that is I just found out, uh, Gabe Finocchio woke Jesus, woke Jesus fame.
0: <laughs> the Osu memes as well, right? Yeah. The Osu the yeah.
3: On fire recently. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he's, uh, he teaches at my church and he was, I can't remember who he was, he was teaching through, if it was Thyatira or somebody, somebody, one of the churches. And he said that gold is indestructible. You cannot destroy gold. It does not leave, it, it's not, you can't break it apart, um, on an atomic level and dispose of it. Like it's always, it's like, it's incredibly strong. And, um, and then when it's, done with this purification process obviously the purer it gets the more reflective it gets and that's that's why you know the nature of this incredibly strong metal because like yes mirrors are reflective but they're incredibly fragile right Mm. gold if it's purified it's reflective and incredibly strong which is the idea of the image of god reflected in us his children um again going back to that concept of, of his breath being replete with seed and filled with life. And when people see us, they're imbued with his presence and his life. And that takes time and it takes humility and that takes a lot of things. It's uh, you know, it's rare when you get around a man and you're with a man in your life and you say to yourself, I would go to war for that guy.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: I would lay down my life next to that guy. Like that's that's a guy I would lay down my life for next to. And it's, it's not because, it's not because, um, you want to build his kingdom essentially necessarily. It's because he's for your kingdom. It's mm-hmm. he laid down his life for your kingdom. And there's that kind of synergy that God creates. I was, I was, I was in California a couple of, uh, I think it was a year ago doing a pastor's conference and my buddy was managing bartending and. I hadn't seen him for like 10 years. He was a high school guy, high school wow. buddy. Not super following the Lord, but, you know, still, he's going to get there. The Lord's going to lasso him, you know. And uh, I went in to say hi to him. And he's running around the bar talking to people. And I end up talking to this guy next to me. He's sitting at the bar by himself. And I just, he was a man. And I just started like, just diving in. What are you doing? You know, what's your purpose? What are your dreams? I could tell he was a creative. And I just was building him up. Just told him God has a plan for his life. And, you know, I'm like, you know, the Bible says if you ask, you'll receive, seek, find, knock, the door will be open. God has a plan for you. Start knocking, you know, all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. just sowing seeds. And then my buddy texted me like three or four days later. And he's like, man, that guy came to my bar again. And he said, he said, I don't know who your friend is, but if he went to war, I'd follow him. Mm-hmm. and i was like one of the greatest compliments i've ever received but it made me want to weep at the same time yeah because the the lonely man you know who's trying who's desperate for a tribe for brothers mm-hmm. for a company of manhood and it's not like you know it's not like king david like there's some the king david's mighty men that did way better stuff than he did like they did way more edgy stuff like like the, the You know, the guy who's who uh, the Mark Batterson book, you know, killed slayed a lion in a snowy pit. You know, the guy whose hand froze the sword. They were just like incredible, phenomenal men. And David was, you know, he obviously killed his giants, but but he was a guy that can bring alongside of him people that were also like incredibly high level. And that's one of the problems like a lot of these celebrity pastors. They have a cadre, and Will. I posted the other day. This guy I was with this guy, and he said to me, "He's like Englehart, You know, what your problem is, he's like you don't have any minions."
0: <laughs> I saw that.
3: Yeah, he's like, "We need more minions," and I'm like, "I hate, I hate pathetic, I hate pathetic men. I hate being so surrounded with uh, half mentally handicapped pathetic men that feel good because they're in my presence. That's disgusting to me. Like, what I want to be surrounded with are men that are bigger than me." That I can push forward and say, "You're a hero. Go kill the giants that God put in front of you." Those are the guys I want to be surrounded, because
0: they make. Yes, yes, and 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 that man that you spoke to that said he would go to war for you, like I, in the masculinity space, there's a lot of talk about like alpha versus beta and that whole low resolution yeah. kind of crap. Um, but one of the things that I think that distinction hides. Is that not every man is meant to be a, a king David? That some right. men they just want to belong to something, and that's okay, right? That's, that's their that could be their highest calling is to belong. And and by demanding that all men be these world-beating alpha men, you yeah. actually deprive men of their actual identity.
3: Yeah, and and have you did you did you watch the Vox Day um, analysis on those Vox V O X? Oh yeah, I know I know Vox. Yeah, Vox has got not personally, but on alpha beta delta gamma men and you know i was watching that and i'm like you know i I think to some degree the categorization is shallow and by that i mean every man is an alpha in front of his wife and children bingo every man is the hero of the freaking universe before his wife and
4: children.
3: they love him like the king of the world and he is the right and that's what he should be and that and he should be honored as such and loved as such and cherished as such and like if you're never a beta then you're shallow and insecure Mm -hmm. if you're never around someone greater than you it's because like like i get around guys and i'm like you're the boss in this section I i was talking to somebody about this today um i said like gabe finocchio who's on staff with me when we talk about church history or, or or complex theology, you're the boss, brother. You're in charge. Like I'm the pastor of the church, but when we get into your zone, you're the boss here. And when we get around like Charlie Kirk, who's I'm like, when we talk politics, you're you're the boss here. But when we talk about church stuff, like like <laughs> my my zone, I'm the boss. That's who I am. And it's like, if men can learn how to coast, I mean. The the Vox Day thing is like there's these people that are, you know, you stole my stapler that that guy from Office Space, right? Like, yeah, there's there's people that are fundamentally dysfunctional, but for the rest of us, we are, you know, we function differently in different circles. I don't go into my father's house and tell him what to do. I'm never going to be the alpha in my father's house. I hope not. I hope I don't demean him ever that way. I hope I always honor him as the alpha, and 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 a robust and complex view of of who we are in hierarchies um would recognize that we interchange in hierarchies all the time and it's good for us to do so right it's good for me to be around a pastor that's 70 and say thank you pastor like really humble really honor him for the years of sacrifice the years of carrying christianity on our shoulders the years of what he's done you know and and that's that's healthy you know i know that the, the asian cultures they call everyone who's older than him Everyone, if you're five years older than someone, everyone younger calls you uncle because there's that built in system of honor that we just don't, you know, we don't get in our culture. Mm.
0: Hyper individualistic Sigma Chad kind of out there on his own in the wilderness, the Ryan Gosling, like that's the meme, right? It's like, I'm, I'm a badass and I'm not accountable to any hierarchies, but I'm still a badass, right? And I I can bolt from your hierarchy whenever I feel like it, just because I'm that lone wolf kind of guy, right? And there's a lot of that. And, and I think that that's, I, I understand the appeal of the archetype and there's something, there's something very appealing about that, especially to the individualistic Western mind, right? Mm-hmm. Because we did actually have to live that way on the frontier to some extent, not probably sure. right. But now I think that, that I, and it's very profitable. It's very easy to write a script about a dude. Who's the the lone world beating guy, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of built into us, but the actual, the actual reality of being a man in the world of, of being, of being a husband who's an alpha in this, you know, his home environment, right? Cause every, every man should be king of his castle, but then transitioning to a workplace environment or a collaborative environment where like, no, we all have different skills and we have to overlap. That's not nearly as compelling a story, right? And it's more oh, it's, uncomfortable. It's, it's, it's more high resolution.
3: Yeah. So like I practice law still, and I, I hope to practice law really for, the next fifty years, well, maybe I won't be alive for that long. But the next forty something years, God willing, yeah. And you walk into the courtroom and you pay homage to the judge, right? Kiss the son lest he be angry with you. Like you're never going to be the top dog in every position. Um, but that's like, a, you know, that's the that's the horror and the tragedy of the dismantling of the patriarchy of the destruction of father. Is like that doesn't come home. You know, I always, I say, I've I said this in my church a number of times to the wives, like, make your husband a sandwich. Yeah. Like, I, it sounds, oh, God, make me a sandwich. Oh, actually, he's a human being. Yeah. He actually likes to eat. He actually feels honored if somebody does something that simple. It's not complicated. Right? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, it's two pieces of bread <laughs> some meat, putting it together and bringing it on a plate and saying, is there anything else, babe? And I know there's tyrants and I know there's bad guys and like, okay, great. Like, there's people that produce porn. Does that mean we throw out all of our movie cameras? There's people that, that, that write trash books. Does that mean we burn all the books? No, of course not. Like, right. we still do the beautiful, even those pe- even though people mar the beautiful. And I think, you know, Again, like you're saying, like they like as a man, you're a, you're a boy sometimes, and sometimes you're a teen, and sometimes you're a dad, and sometimes you get to be the sage on the mountain. I don't feel like I'm that old, but every once in a while, I get to be the sage on the mountain, and it's really fun to be the sage on the mountain. Mm-hmm. And then I go to places, and I'm like, I'm not the sage on the mountain. I need to shut my mouth and just wait, and that's healthy. And that's like <laughs> I heard of, I heard a a, a a story yesterday about a really famous pastor. Um this guy Carl Lentz that most of the world mm. knows about. Carl was like the most famous guy ever. And a buddy of mine had him in his church, and he's like, Hey, dude, our senior pastor wants to like go out after you preach and and go in the in the foyer and talk to talk to everybody and just like pray with people and love on them and hang with them. And Carl's like refuses to do it. And then they finally drag him out there. And he's like, As soon as he gets out to the foyer, he's like, Can I go to the bathroom? I need to go to the bathroom. I have to go to the bathroom.
1: You're just
4: like,
3: oh, how pathetic! And he runs to the bathroom, and he's like in the bathroom for too long. And then he comes out, and he says to my my this acquaintance of mine, he's like, "Is my time where I have to be out in the foyer? Is it up yet?" <laughs> he doesn't want to be with people. He doesn't. He's too good for. He's like too, like he's he's the al, he's the king in every. He's the alpha everywhere. He always should be bowed to. And it's like, no, dude. Like, mm-hmm. make the people the king in this instance. Yeah. Make them the ones that you. Like, you want to share your heart with me? Oh my goodness, please do. Like, I'm so honored that you would share your heart. with me. I, I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to be with you. I'd love to look at you right in the eyes and see what's going on in your heart. And if I can, in one moment, pray with you and help you connect with the Lord and get through this, that would be like, we're eternal beings, mm. eternal beings. This is like one little blink of the eye And we're going to be shooting forth in a destiny into eternity. We're not going to be bowing before the throne forever, you know, like Muslims, just like, oh, we're not doing that. We're going to have an adventure with God into eternity. That's what we have in eternity. God is a God of story and story will continue for eternity. And so to to treat someone in this moment on earth, this temporal moment, like they're worthless is, is the dumbest investment you could ever make
0: just want to let that ring out for a second because you're so right it's uh it's to hear when people that have been blessed with gifts of leadership of of millions thousands or millions of people mm-hmm. actually you know from from a remove have to encounter the people whose lives they've blessed and can't handle it that they can't be there that they've been they've been given this enormous blessing and that when they have to actually come into contact with it, they can't. Is always the most heartbreaking thing to hear because you've provided this, you've provided these gifts to people. And yes, yeah. there's a lot of hunger out there. It's terrifying the amount of hunger and need and want and longing and brokenness that's out there. Mm-hmm. And and it can it can drain a man. It can drain a mm-hmm. man's heart and his energy. But you give anyway. And and as a counterexample, in the secular world, um, Garth Brooks years ago gave a concert in Central Park. I don't know, maybe you've heard this concert. So, so it was like 2 million people were there. It's massive. You can probably find footage of it on, on YouTube. My family used to watch it. And, um, and afterwards, I heard, I was, uh, I, I was in California at the time. I heard, though, that he stayed and he signed every single autograph from everyone who wanted one. Like one or two million people in Central Park showed up. He signed all these autographs it's like that's it that's how you do it
3: yeah exactly yeah the whole like man i rage against the man of god culture because i think it's i just think it's so stupid sometimes you know it's like i have a guy follow me around holding my bible like and then like you just hold my bible i major in the charismatic culture and i'm a charismatic i believe in the gifts of the holy spirit i believe in all the cool stuff we don't we don't get wacky with it we don't act ridiculous uh, but we believe it's real but like in that culture like you have like again a whole a whole cadre of of, of plebeians that are like you know like a, a man should be a man should be glorified by people around him the, the proverb says the proverb says uh that the wife is the crown of the husband like your wife and and that's a principle that applies obviously to wives Uh, but let's stop there. Wife is a crown of the husband. And so one of the things I hate is when I see like a guy who's like a tough guy and his wife is just like, looks like a beat up paper bag. Hmm. Like bro, get your wife some makeup, get her some beautiful clothes. Like she's, she's you, she represents you. She should be beautiful. Tend your garden, man. Like you want your wife to look beautiful and smell beautiful. I don't care if she weighs 300 pounds or buck 20 make her like give her beautiful things and make her desirable for you if you don't care for her like you don't care for your garden and then you fall into sin it's your fault it's your fault that you didn't tend your garden Mm -hmm. tend your garden love your wife buy her beautiful things not not sexual like not sexual things i don't need your wife wearing a corset out in public right but she should be beautiful you should get her hair done you should like all of that stuff is part of the job of a man like god put adam and eve and said or adam in the garden and said, take care of this place man keep it beautiful keep it flourishing and that's still the job of a man um and if like if we do that right then uh we enjoy the gardens that, that god gave us somebody said like every man will drink from the fountain it just depends upon what fountain he drinks from and that's true like like men men have certain desires and. God made those gave us those desires to expressly be fulfilled by our wives. And you they won't be fulfilled by your wife if you don't care for her, if you don't if you don't cherish her, if you don't, you know, all of those kind of things. I know it's silly, but my wife asked me what kind of hairstyle I think she should get. She's going to get some kind of crazy half dark hair, half blonde hair thing soon because it's like the next edgy New York thing i think it's awesome i think it's creative and awesome and really like cool and um it's gonna you know as a man i'm just like look at my wife look at she's she's a trophy and she's not a trophy wife because she's sexual let me just clarify that you know she's a trophy wife because she's beautiful and she exudes the presence of god and and we take care of our gardens I don't know how we got to this, that subject, but it's a good man subject.
0: <laughs> no, I, it's, it's great. I was listening to, I'm sure it's probably something by like Doug Wilson or something like that, or uh, Rachel, Rachel Jankovic, one of his, one of his, one of his daughters. And, and she was saying that, um, that a woman who uh, w- can wear clothes that accentuates her face, and then that's modesty, right? Or she can wear clothes that accentuates her body, and that's sensuality. Right. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what a brilliant, what a brilliant distinction. Totally. Right? Totally.
4: Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
3: We're really big on that. And my, wa- and actually, my father in law, my father in law was, um, he was a guy that was like living for the ending of Roe v. Wade through the eighties and nineties. Hmm. And felt like the Lord spoke to him one day and said, Jim, like, you're not going to end the thing by going after the fruit on the tree. Like, you actually have to pursue the heart of the daughter that's been broken and it's been devastated and is willing to kill her own you know, to off her own child, like the heart of a daughter is what needs to be pursued. And so he, he traveled to Russia a ton of times. He, um, 40, 40 plus times he spent in, in Russia and Eastern Europe. And he, uh, he would say, raise your hands. People would have commonly 12 to 15 abortions in these meetings of thousands of people, because that was their birth. Their birth control was just have an abortion, just off your child. And, um, and God broke his heart for it and he 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 raised some incredible kids and incredible daughters that understood that's exactly right like you can be stylish and beautiful without accentuating your body that's it's not hard to do uh and you can accentuate the beauty that God's given you the face is something that's that's an incredibly beautiful thing it's all throughout proverbs that you know the glory of the glory of God is upon the face of his kids and so yeah i mean i think that's something that the church needs to understand As you go Again, you go to these attractional pastors and you go to some of their Instagram accounts, and they're putting their wives in bikinis on their Instagram accounts. I get so angry, I get so angry, like fire burning angry, and I think, how dare you sexualize your wife mm-hmm. how first how dare you, as a husband, sexualize your wife? second of all, like uh do you know you're causing young men to sin when they're looking they're sexualizing your wife and then um third, like If you're sexualizing your wife and you're making her a sexual object, then you're making other women a sexual object. That's just kind of how that works. And I want, you know, God's, I want God to deal with that in the church because it's, it's, it's an evil. There's a there's one of the churches in revelation. God says like, you're teaching, you're teaching Balaam's teaching and it causes the children of Israel to stumble. And if you remember um, Balaam, the story of Balaam, you don't you don't hear about him causing the children of Israel to stumble. It's not in there. Like Balak says to Balaam, "Hey bro, I want you to uh, curse the nation of Israel." And Balaam's not even an Israelite. He's just like a seer, somebody that has some kind of influence in the spiritual world. And then he's like, "No, no, no, no. God's gonna God's gonna end me if I do that." And then he's like, I, "You know, I'll pay you whatever you want." He's like, "Fine, I'll go." And then the donkey thing happens. You don't remember, Revelation says that Balaam was going to put a stumbling block in front of Israel to cause them to sin. And it's such an interesting idea because that doesn't, that's not a a natural uh, conclusion from the story of Balaam. But the idea is that he was persuaded by the things of the flesh. The money persuaded him to do something evil. Nothing wrong with money, but it can persuade you to do something. evil. Money is like, a, it's a blessing, but, a but it's, it's, I, I think money and alcohol are super similar. I think mm-hmm. money, like if rightly handled is a phenomenal blessing. You can be a billionaire and love Jesus and steward it rightly and be a huge blessing. You could be a, you could be a, a um, an owner of vineyards and love Jesus and steward it rightly. And it could be a blessing, but you can be an owner of vineyards and be a drunk and be, chained to alcoholism and, you know and and dissipation and your salvation is in trouble right and so it's like that that issue with with pastors sexualizing their wives it's like okay boys like if you're doing things that cause other men to struggle to stumble intentionally and you know that you're going to be in danger because jesus is not like a, a giant baby in the sky he's got a sword. He's got the stars of the universe in one hand, right? It's like, that Revelation picture of Jesus is so so incredibly terrifyingly powerful. Mm-hmm. And while I'm on this thought, will I had a dream last night, and in the stream I was preaching in front of a large group, and they were like trying to turn off my microphone, and I kept saying like, the fear of the Lord is real, and I kept saying the fear of the Lord is simple, it's fear of the Lord. I keep hearing, like, for, the, for you know, the last 10, 20 years of my life, what is the fear of the Lord? Oh, it's reverence. Yeah. Oh, it's honor. It's like, well, then why doesn't it say that? It literally says fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is speaking of wisdom. And, I, you know, if you do stupid things enough, God will end you. Sorry, that's how I interpret that. If, you're, if you sleep and snort coke and preach on the pulpit, God will end you. That's that's called the fear of the Lord. If you think you're going to get away with it at all, you're going to be struck down. Johnny Cash, chapter three, verse
0: three. One of my favorite books. Yeah.
3: (laughs) And it's just a reality. Like one of the like he's not a joker. He's not going to be pushed around. You want to test him? Let's see what happens. You know that's called the fear of the Lord. That's what that is. And the people that have the fear of the Lord don't do incredibly stupid things because they know the lord doesn't like them that much. Like what about the grace and forgiveness in Jesus? Yeah, you get all that when you repent. That's correct. When you repent, you get a truckload, an ocean load of grace and forgiveness. But when you blatantly disregard God's way, expect to be cut down. That's that's how the story goes.
0: Always. Always, right? Yeah. Like pride goeth before the fall, right? That's just that's just how it is. You 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 hold yourself up as as bigger than God or equal to God. And it's like, uh, no, it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't work that way. <laughs> I hate to tell you. Right. Yeah. So to
3: uh, jump into the book. What do you want to talk
0: about? I want to jump into the book. You read my mind. You read my mind. So, um, so what inspired, what inspired the book? I know that there were some personal experiences behind some of the chapters, which I could feel in, in reading them. Black lives, black lives gather in particular. Yeah. Um, but, but what was it, what was it that, that, uh, inspired you to write this book? What was kind of the driving philosophy behind it and kind of the structure as well?
3: Um, I will say, Will, that I've always wanted to write something. My dad was an incredible reader. Uh, my dad is a blue collar guy that got saved as a printer yeah, in a printing shop in Catskill, New York. His dad, his father was a Bronx printing press owner. And so just like blue collar German guys fighting the fight, trying to make it in America. And so there's this funny lineage of printing presses, you know, that, and then my dad, he'd written a couple of things and he was just super um, intense reader. And so I always kind of wanted to write and I was a horrible writer until I got through law school and that really uh, helped me. Um, but I was in, Hill, I was at Hillsong and I know there's a lot of uh, different ideas about that church the short story for me is that I I moved to New York city to plant a church and start a, uh, start a law practice, but I didn't know how to get a client and I didn't know how to make any money. So I met with a number of pastors from some big churches in Manhattan. And I I said to these pastors, Hey guys, I just need to sit in the back row somewhere before I'm ready to start my church. Because like, you know, I'm broke and it's bad. And Hillsong, God, you know, God bless him. Maybe. Um, Hmm. Hillsong pastor, one of the associates was like, "Great! Like we have a huge church, nobody will care. Sit in the back row and just serve here." And so I was teaching at one of their theology classes uh, for a friend of mine, and I was teaching about Jesus choosing the disciples, which is an incredible thing to talk about. You should probably do it on one of your Renaissance of Men podcasts because Jesus choosing the disciples is like that's about God calling men, right? That's fundamentally. Mm-hmm. Um, but I said a phrase during my class. I said, "Good kills sometimes I said, "God drops the sword and he exercises judgment and and you gotta you know you got to recognize that at Hillsong at the time, there were a lot of people and a lot of them were newly, newly saved and had a secular worldview. and so when I looked sometimes when you're speaking and you say a phrase to a crowd, you can feel. Um, a a reaction, a rejection of what you just said, kind of them to the shell of their being. And I felt that I I was kind of, I was just really, I was, I was like, huh, like there are knights with swords that kill dragons. Do we, do we not remember that? Good sometimes has to slay bad guys or, or, or," and and I, and I, and then I kind of was just, you know, it was before Jordan Peterson hit the scene I think i I think it was this was two thousand and fifteen, and so I started writing this book Good Kills and um I got about three quarters of the way done with it, and i'm not I'm a great starter of things, I'm not a great finisher, and so it just kind of sat on my shelf for a few years and then um a bunch of cultural events happened that I felt like this construct would be important to apply to, like the Black Lives Matter stuff um sexuality racism how to deal with politics and then i finished the book um um as applied to our current cultural context and i i hope it to be it's really simple it's like god has a law the law is for a benefit even if you're a christian the law still matters and if you apply it in its in the way it 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 it, it represents itself It will be good for us. I I mean, it sounds stupid to want you to say it that simply, but people have rejected God's law and order, certainly a hierarchy of law, and um, that's created, uh, that's opened the door to just chaotic thinking about what God thinks is important. And if you don't know what God thinks is important, you will strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. That's what you'll do.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Reminds me of uh, was it the Chesterton quote? It's the Christian way of life. Has it's not that it's failed or something like that? It's it's never been it it hasn't been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and never tried. Exactly,
4: exactly.
0: It's such a beautiful way of looking at it. And and I'm actually I'm actually um, grateful that you struggle at finishing because I think had you finished the book when you set out to write it, and had it not ended up on your shelf for five years, it wouldn't have landed at a moment when it was when it was most needed, particularly, particularly for me, because there's a way of, there's a way of speaking about Christianity um, and the masculine aspects of it in Christ and his disciples and in David and in John the Baptist and, and everything, right? The, the characters, are, the, the Bible's replete with masculine characters. And there's, there's no shortage of them and their flaws, right? Yeah. Which is, but, but there's a way of preaching also, preaching the message also that it's like, no, I'm going to preach this in a masculine way. And I, mm-hmm. I and, you know because I've personally never experienced the moment where I say something and people retreat into their being. That's never ever happened to me. <laughs> but you know, there's a, there's a there's a way in which the word has to be preached. I think in a way, it's like no, I'm going to challenge you with my tone and with my posture and with my presence, yeah. not for the purpose of provoking you necessarily, but because yeah. this is a truth that we don't want to look at that makes you uncomfortable with. It doesn't mean you don't have to look at it.
3: No, you're right. You're right. You know, Paul. Paul, I can't remember. Yeah they say like, you're a lion in your letters and you're just a lamb when you're in front of us, right? You're a baby when you're in front of us. You're super gentle when you're in front of us. But when you're in your letters, you're screaming and yelling at us. And Paul was like, yeah, that's what I do. I, I, I bring the full heat in my presentation. And then when I'm looking at you in the eyes, my heart's breaking and I love you and I want redemption for you and I want change for you. And I want to appeal to you humbly Um, but in my letters, I bring the, the, the rod because the proverb says the rod is for the back of fools. And if you're a fool, which means you're no longer willing to accept someone else's perspective, that's what a fool is. You need the rod. You need to be cracked on. You need to be broke. You need to be, you need to be whipped. And, And you need that moment of pain to say, like, is it possible that that person's right? Because if, there's not that moment you won't you'll just disregard everything they have to say and that's the thing like i've been getting in trouble for a little bit in the last six months and and my buddy gabe finocchio has been getting in trouble for the last six months is like you're being too harsh with other leaders and
4: Mm.
3: i was with charlie in 2020 and i was about to stand up on a stage and i was going to talk about like people that i had looked up to like Judah Smith and Carl Lentz and some really famous, attractional kind of mainstream evangelical preachers. I was about to like name, name drop them and say the heretical statements they'd been saying. I'm standing in the black area behind the, you know, behind the curtain. And I'm about mm-hmm. to go on the stage and they're like, This is going to go out to a million people and a million people are going to see this online. Da, 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 da. And I was saying to God, I was just praying in the back. I'm like, Lord, I don't feel like I should really be like, attacking other pastors i feel like i'm being really harsh i think probably like just an incredible strong sense of the voice of god inside of my being uh, like resounded back you're not being nearly harsh enough and i just was immediately reminded of like jesus calling the pharisees graves full of dead men's bones you know uh, like serpents and vipers and and like you like how evil is this? Like, you block the way to heaven, and neither do you go there. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh, like your job is to guide people to heaven, and you're literally a blockade on the way to even get there at all. Like, to pretend that Jesus was some kind of happy go lucky, like po- lollipop machine gun shooting guy is such nonsense, right? Yeah. He was mashing, but not because he hated them and not because he was mean. But because a rod is the only appropriate tool for the fool, the fool that says I'm right and no one else is, only pain will get them to say, maybe I'm wrong. That's the only response. And that's not, that's, that's what the Bible says. It's not my idea. And so I'm, I'm still even not good at it right now, Will. Like, I still feel like, so I read a book on the plane on the way here. I'll t- uh, the book is called God and Race. It's a piece of trash, trash, flaming trash by two pastors that I really like Mm. my, I I like them personally on a personal level. I really like them. Yeah. The book is, is such garbage. And the one pastor says in the book, I was driving at night past 11 o'clock at night and my lights were off and this cop pulled me over. And this is how I know he was so racist because he said, where are you guys? What are you guys doing here? And I told him I was a pastor in the neighborhood, and I was like, going, I was just going home from dinner, and I knew he was so racist, and I was trembling because of his racism. And then he went and checked my ID, and then he came back and he said, "You guys have a nice night." And he said, "Please, in the future, drive with your lights on." And the and the author is talking about how racist this cop was, and he said I had to pull over because I was trembling so hard. I was trembling with fury because of this racist encounter. And then, dude, and then he says. And Jesus felt this alone. And Jesus felt this much pain on the cross. On the cross of Calvary, <sighs> where Jesus died for the sins of the world, is equivalent to you being pulled over, not having your lights on at 11 o'clock at night. And I'm like, I was reading it yesterday. I'm on the plane. And I, I literally threw my book on the floor, scaring my pet, this person sitting next to me on the plane. I'm like God. These are people. These are these are people Mm -hmm. that are like they love you. They love your word. They're so deceived and they're so foolish on these issues. I don't know how they can be corrected unless they literally get cracked with a rod. And and me to say like publicly, which I'm going to write a letter to both of them. You just equated you getting pulled over without lights on to Jesus carrying the sins of the world. You are a fool and a moron. Please repent, because this is asinine. This is insane. This is literally insane. And some days the rod is for fools, and men are supposed to be the exerciser of the rod. And we've had a culture where it's like we're all best friends. Everybody in the church is best friends. Everybody hugs each other. You know, I'm not totally into is it is it the is it the Wycliffe Confession of it's the WCF something. It's not the West. Is it the Westminster Confession of Faith? They're like. The Pope is the Antichrist. (laughs) It's just like straight up. The Pope is the Antichrist. Yeah. They're like, you can't even be reformed unless you say the Pope is straight up the Antichrist. And I'm like, well, you know, whatever the Pope, we don't like the Catholics are almost irrelevant in our current, in America anyway. But my guys that are leaving orthodoxy, they need to be cracked like that. Like people need to be cracked, not because we're mad at them, not because I want to, like leapfrog off of them for for fame, but because I want them to say, yeah, you know what? Being pulled over without my lights on isn't like being on the cross. Yeah, those are definitely different. You know, like, mm. use our brains. Let's not say America is racist because you got pulled over for not having your lights on.
0: Yeah. Well, that's, a. I mean, I hear that, and uh, I hear what it what is is that's a pledge of allegiance. That's a yeah. pledge of allegiance to the, to the machine, to the state, you know, which demands fealty to the, to the racial agenda. And so when you say my being pulled over with my lights off and I was so scared for my life as that's just like, I'm no longer loyal to Jesus. I'm loyal to you. Please make my book a bestseller. Yeah. It's
3: like, okay. So like, exactly. That's exactly right. Will like, isn't God in control of the world? Yep. Like what if you were about to be martyred for, for sharing your faith? Would you be trembling and crying and weeping? Would you be so shook that you can't even drive the car? Or would you be singing a hymn and saying, Jesus, you are worthy to be praised, the lamb who is slain. I would hopefully be doing the latter of those things. And that's what a man does. He's brave in the the face of fear. He doesn't say, oh my God, the oppression is destroying my life. Is there oppression? Yes. Everyone is oppressed. Everyone is oppressed by hell and the devil and sin and demons and like uh, everyone is there white privilege yeah is there black privilege yeah is there white oppression yes is there black oppression yes there is and men (laughs) men put put the sword in the sheath and walk out to the world and say there's some things i may need to kill today that's what we do that's our job
0: i mean I'm in total agreement because the job of men for centuries, for millennia, was you as a man, probably right up until the industrial revolution, right? Right up up until the factory. The responsibility of almost any man was to have to kill something. You know, even if you were a farmer, you probably had to kill the cow or you had to kill the pig or the chicken, or maybe you had to go off to war if you were a miner or a tailor or something like that. But you as a man at some point in your life would have to kill something. Now, most men go through their whole lives without ever killing anything or even seeing anything be killed. So they've lost the ability to do it.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So like, so, and, and the parallel from the physical to the spiritual is like, can you kill the things in your own life? Can you kill the things that are destroying your family? Can you kill your porn addiction? Are you willing to get muddy? Are you willing to get messy? Are you willing to go to another man and say, hey, bro, like I am addicted and look at this filth every day and it makes me hate myself and want to kill myself. I really don't want to kill myself, but after this, over and over again, literally my soul says you're filthy and you should destroy yourself. Why? Well, kind of because God made the laws of the universe. And sexuality is about the creation of new identities. And so when you when you mess with that thing, you mess with a fundamental part of yourself. That's, you know, I, that's that whole sexual anarchy chapter of my book. It's like like God's like, Okay, I made man and woman, and then I made them to be joined in sexual unity, and that is, unity is supposed to be for life. And we're like, nah, we don't need no fault divorce. We can just divorce whenever we want. It doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be for life. Nah, we don't need marriage to be man and woman. Let's just, uh, Elon Musk said this the other day, today, I want to slam Duncan. Stay out of people's bedrooms. Okay, Elon, yeah, we'll stay out of people's bedrooms. We'll just allow kids to choose their own gender from birth. We'll stay out of people's bedroom. Be long. that won't destroy a society. Right? Be fine, right? And then, like, you and then, like, you you take away even like male and female sexuality being the essential element. You're like, oh, I don't even know what I am. I'm a two spirit ind- indigenous like unicorn sex creature. You're like, how dare you say I'm not? How dare you? You rape bigot patriarch say i'm not a unicorn rainbow sex creature that's what i am and i'm two-spirit so sometimes i'm not that sometimes i'm just a regular person and and i can just you know i'm i am the arbiter of the universe you're like that's what men are supposed to be for they establish boundaries and order and definition they hold in place the function uh, the structure and they turn off all of the voices that say something else and that's I, I don't know, Will. Like, I think it's like something we need to start doing. Like, I, I've been doing this for a long time. We haven't had TV in our house for our whole life. Our whole marriage, we haven't had TV in our house because it's, it's, it's filth. I mean, we watch movies and we watch probably some movies that we shouldn't every once in a while, but we watch movies and like, whatever. Uh, TV, I refuse to have in my house. I refuse to have uh, just a portal from some secularist's idea of what family should be. Like, how is it possible? That homosexual or transgender or whatever, like LGBTQ spectrum people represent 1% to 2% of America, and they show up in 33 to 40% of our commercials. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because there's this express agenda from hell to confuse our children, to normalize them to all of this kind of stuff. What it's about? It's about sexuality. It's not about love. It's not about permanence. It's not about family.
4: Anyway, that's a
3: different uh, topic. But the before thing that we said is like men are called to be disciplinarians, not just in their families, but in culture and call people the carpet. And like if I do something stupid or say something stupid that's unbiblical, you know, like against the tenets of orthodoxy, that's another point, Will, is like I'm tired of fighting about like cessationism versus charismatic people. Like, oh, who cares? Like if you don't want to pray in tongues, I don't care. Who cares? We're talking about the fundamentals of family and marriage. Like, those are the issues that create societies. Everything else is secondary, and let people have liberty there. Like, that's where we say, like, you know, in essentials, unity, and everything else, liberty, right? Who is that? Was that Aquinas or Augustine? One of those. I think it was Aquinas. You know, in essentials, unity. In the Nicene Creed and in the fundamentals of the Garden of Eden, which are men work. This is the fundamentals of the Garden of Eden men work. Right, they're supposed to protect from snakes. They love their brides. <laughs> they name things. They order things. They create structure. The brides have babies. They love the place they're in. They honor their their spouses. Okay, there it is. Fundamentals and on top of that, basics of like let's say the Nicene Creed. Uh, that's it. Anybody on those pages with me? I'm willing to play ball with. If you say, Nah, we don't need those fundamental tenets of marriage. We don't need men working. We can. Just give poor people money and carnival and bread and carnival. Nope. Sorry. Not on the same page as you.
0: Mm -hmm. I deal with this in in my own sphere. You know, there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of men that are, that are coming to Christ and and that are um, going the Eastern Orthodox route. Yeah. And, uh, and, and a lot of them are going to Catholicism as well, fewer. Um, And they're always like low Protestants and they're just dunking all over fellow Christians. And it's like, guys, like can we, can we talk about Jesus for a minute? Like, yeah. I, I, can we talk about culture? Can we talk about fighting yeah. this war? Cause I, I'm not really interested, like show up on the battlefield. And I don't, I don't engage with those, with those interdenominational discussions. I just don't because there's another more serious enemy out there, but some people just get really hung up on here's three hours about why all this is wrong. It's like, bro, like, are you, are you watching this? Like the world's on yeah. fire? <laughs> like the, the preach the word that way. Like we're, we're good over the here. world
3: fire and you're complaining like we're on a ship that's on fire You're complaining about the color of masts. it's like uh that's irrelevant right now we're all going to die soon right we're
0: now it's complain. irrelevant yeah
3: yeah like you're going to be you're going to be arguing that theological issue in jail
4: that's what right you, that's where
3: um yeah i have a buddy that is always telling me i uh, you know i can't wait till you come home and he's a catholic guy because <sighs> the catholic true home and then i'm like broski you know gk chesterton said i cannot debate no, no, I think, I can't, I can't remember if it was Chesterton and Lewis. Chesterton or Lewis. I think it was Chesterton and the Everlasting Man. He's like, the problem with debating the, the Mother Mary is that you are offending someone's idea of God and their mother at the same time, <laughs> which is just genius, right? hmm And it's like, okay, like, I don't want you to talk to me about coming home. I don't want you to be posting about your, your extremist idea or even your, like, nuanced idea. Like, let's fight for the basics, Jesus came to forgive us of our sin he was a sacrifice for all mankind he's the only atonement he he is the only icon of atonement and not even not just icon but 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 actual manifestation of atonement Judaism doesn't have atonement mm-hmm. you know the Muslim religion doesn't have atonement mm-hmm. the Buddhists don't have atonement mm-hmm. only Christ cleanses us from sins and puts us in right relationship with God there's nothing else that even attempts to do it since 2000 you know two thousand years ago the Judaic temple was destroyed and the jews lost all opportunity for atonement the muslims don't have atonement the buddhists don't have atonement so the only way to be reckoned with god in all of the in all of the vast religions of the world is through christ and he's given it to us and let's go there and love our families and, and like and be righteous and love our neighbors like can we just do that please and no we can't because um why because because the enemy loves for us to fight on secondary and tertiary issues to distract us from the primary purpose and you know this should be like the 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 chapter that was never written of c.s lewis's screw tape letters it's like if they're on the team and they're fighting for what's right what we'd love to do even like if they're still going to go ahead and, and take some people with them is just get them hooked up to you know the divinity of mary or whatever stupid issue that's that's mostly irrelevant and that you know that just like it takes it takes you out and i think there's a fear i think there's a i think that happens politically with pastors too when they Mm. do as big as the vaccinations or something like that like i'm I'm not a vaccination guy i think the new vax was stupid all Mm. my kids have vaccinated with every vaccination which i wish they hadn't been Mm. other than the most recent stupid vaccination and when we were like standing against vaccinations and i we weren't standing against it, we were just saying Christians have a moral imperative to make a decision and to not be stupid and to look into it and say, my body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. I have a moral imperative to research what I'm putting, what I'm injecting into my eyeball. And I had some buddies that were like, we're just gonna talk about this for the next three months. And I'm like, bro, you're leaving the gospel. Like you can touch these issues. You can't make your church an anti-vax church. It's like you're missing the primacy of the gospel. You're missing the primacy of Christ. And you're getting pulled away by, by stupid issues. And it's like, it's pulling you from Christ. And that's, that's just, you know, that's the strategy of the enemy.
0: That brings up an interesting question about keeping a, a sense of perspective and balance in your, in your church message. Not yours, yours, but any church message of like, Obviously, we need to be commenting on this sociopolitical moment, spiritual moment that we find ourselves in. And yeah. we can't get drawn in to only thinking about that. Like you must, you must always frame things within a biblical Christian perspective and then pop out of that, you know, that ground level view to something 50,000 feet and recognize that there's something so much larger going on and we have to stay connected to that.
4: Yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, I mean, well, how do we do that? I- I'll just say like the way I do it, I think you can do it just by being intentional, but the way I do it is by expositional preaching. And expositional preaching, some people call it consecutive exegetical, is um you're locked into the you're locked into the scripture and you I mean, not all the great preachers did this. Spurgeon certainly didn't preach like this. He Spurgeon was a topical preacher, but for us, like if I just preach through the scripture and it'll give me opportunities to blast off. So this week second samuel i think it's chapter i can't remember 9 10 or 11 one of those three um i'm jumping into well we're doing chapter by chapter so like king david sends these guys out to this other kingdom and they're they're mourning for this king this 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 king that was associated in an associated kingdom that died and the bad guys, the Amorites, say, Hey, like David sent spies. We need to chop off the beards of the spies and send them back. Or, you know, to, to David. So you're like, you're talking about chopping the beards off of these men that were, that were representatives of David's kingdom. And, and that's a horrific thing in that context, right? The, the beard represented your masculinity. Your glory, you're like and so I'm reading this i'm i I try to yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh I'm reading through this, and I'm like, man, I could go, I can go after transgenderism, I could go after like you know you know this egalitarian versus complementarian like I can like bring scripture to so many issues based upon beard shaving right because mm-hmm. it it opens the door, and I think. And that's what happened to me even earlier on when I was preaching. My first year of opening a church in New York City, like preaching through the life of, of Abraham, you show up in Genesis 19 in Sodom and Gomorrah. You're like, what are you going to do, dude? You're going to preach to that? You're going to have some guts and preach to that? Or are you going to shy away and say, oh, it's cultural and we don't know why. God probably, God probably nuked that city because of molestation or, or it was unconsensual. No, mm-hmm. wrong. God nuked the city because homosexuality is one of the sins that cries out to God for judgment. That's why He nuked that city, and um, and that's in the purview of God. Um, and so, I think one of the ways to do it, Will, is not uh, is like by not getting too hooked on on the on the moment, but allowing the Scripture to to give some time for the moment. Because, you know, I'll talk about David and his kingdom and following Christ and what does it look like to follow Christ and follow the kingdom of Christ. And, you know, what does it look like to mourn with those who mourn? And then I'll get into the beard thing. Like, there's all kinds of issues to hit for a Christian. And then I'll end it with, as I always do, I'll end it with a redemptive element where Christ is the hero and he's the king. And if we turn our lives to him and repent, he'll be the hero for us and we can live in his power and life. And so... The guys that do it wrong, I think, get too hung up on the political moments and, and, and the political figures. Christ is our king. He's our hero. We direct people towards him. We win. We direct people towards ourselves. We lose. We direct our, our, our people towards political figures. We lose. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not supposed to support political figures. Of course we are. Of course we are. But ultimately, you know, we direct people towards God's word and, and, a, and an honest reading of it that doesn't, you know, dismiss, um, the text. That's what I do. I don't know what other guys do, but that, tr- that generally keeps me, um, relatively honest and, and talking about things I don't always want to talk about.
0: How does that, how does that go for you doing this in uh, New York city?
3: So at first we, I, I, I think I avoided like maybe eight, well, maybe, maybe maybe eight out of 10 subjects I hit, but two out of 10 subjects I didn't. Hmm. I was really scared to talk about racism because, um, you know, they say, like, if you're white, you can't talk about racism. They, they tell you that. And I didn't believe that. I never. I, I always un- understood logically, like, one plus one is two. And I don't care if you're from, uh, you know, the Virgin Islands or Alaska or Africa. I don't care where you're from if you tell me one plus one is two, that truth resounds on the inside of me. And so if you talk to me about a racial truth, it doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter who you are or what you look like. Truth is truth and resonates. Resonates, Um, And so I didn't do that well. I was scared. I was scared for the first kind of year and a half to talk about race issues. And I just kind of avoided them. And I actually think, this may have, this is not probably going to offend your followers but it will offend some people out there i actually think um, worship of the world which primarily is manifest in in the global climate stuff mm-hmm. i think a massive doorway for the demonic for demonic uh, deception and so when i like oh my god like i i need to have like a $25,000 a person tax and we and and the globalists are going to fix cuz they're so smart have you ever been to the DMV? <laughs> have you ever seen how a government entity functions? Are you out of your mind? You think they're going to fix a problem as complex as global warming if it even exists? Are you, have you lost your mind? And so I actually think the global warming stuff is like Romans chapter one. They, it says they worship the created thing rather than the creator who will be forever glorified you know, amen. And so like you start worshiping the world, it opens the doorway for all of this other secular stuff. And so I had some people in my church that were like turning vegan because of global warming. Mm. And dude, this is a, this is just pastor failure. I remember thinking I'm too tired to deal with these guys. Mm. I don't have time to, and I'm too tired and we'll figure it out on the back end. And this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. They're going to be vegan to fix global warming. Like, how did that fix global warming? Oh, because you didn't eat a burger, therefore a cow didn't, literally, a cow didn't fart in the universe and create more greenhouse gases. Like, you're out of your mind. But Romans says that secular people begin to worship the created thing rather than the creator. They put their trust in their own ability rather than God's abilities. It doesn't mean we should disregard the world. I I, I will tell you that I... And I, I'm very harsh on my boys if they leave litter on the ground. I'm very harsh on myself if I leave litter on the ground. If I throw you know, a bottle or miss the trash or throw a wrapper on the ground. It's my responsibility to care for the garden. It's my responsibility. But that's totally different than being the arbiter of the universe. Like, than being, thinking I control the temperature of the whole universe by my actions. Those are two very different things. And so, because I allowed that in uh, the racism stuff came in, and when the racism thing happened in twenty twenty we got we got drop kicked and um, I hadn't talked about it and then the Bron- one night, the Bronx was on fire, and I remember seeing these two shop owners being attacked um, and trying to fight off bands of looters with mops and whatever they had in their shop and These are guys that had just moved to America, trying to live the American dream, uh being beaten by people that have been subjects to the racism of the left with, you know, whatever it is with, with the tyrannical welfare state, uh, soft tyranny as de Tocqueville would say.
4: Hmm.
3: And, um, and I snapped and I started just the dude, I was, I, this is what I was posting. I was posting scriptures literally and Martin Luther King Jr.'s quotes. And, and they were so offensive to the people on the left in my, in my church that they, all these people they left they they hijacked our email list they wrote letters to the entire church about how racist we were we were we were church a, a year and a half in in new york city it was tough long story short our church got down to about 20 people maybe 30 and i was praying in the backyard of a buddy's house and i and and i was very sad and i was like well it's all over here god and i i closed my eyes and in my imagination i saw this incredible picture of Jesus. And standing with his hands on my shoulders and he was laughing with this incredible booming cannon laugh like firing you know mortars laughing and i was like what are you i was thinking in my mind i didn't say it out loud i was like what are you laughing about like like the church is over my life is over like bad guys are winning and i heard i just was reminded that scripture my ways are not your ways my thoughts are not your thoughts as high as the heavens are above the earth so much higher My thoughts and your thoughts, and my ways and your ways. And within about two months, I they asked me to share my story on the Charlie Kirk show, and then they asked me to just travel and speak with them everywhere. And then I was on the board of Turning Point, which is an incredibly substantial organization. Then I'm like meeting the president and like all of this stuff, and I get swept up into this incredible world of political leaders flying in private jets and all this kind of stuff from like just because I by the grace of God, held fast to his way and his word against the tide of secularism, that Romans one worshiping the world. And the Lord, you know, the Lord blessed it. And so how how do we deal with like secularism in New York City? I I, I am, I'm I'm intentionally antagonistic against the left, because I feel like the, the axioms of the left are secular humanism um, root rooted in rebellion. And so if anyone wants to challenge me on that, that, that idea, I'm happy to wrestle with them on that, but I antagonize those with a different, with, with a non-biblical. So it's like, repent. You want to come in with your, your same worldview. You're not allowed in, you're not allowed into my church. We guard against wolves. Uh, that's what my job is. I excommunicated somebody, uh, I don't know, it was like six, nine months ago, Will. I don't even know a church in my in my like cadre of churches that have ever done that before. But I excommunicated somebody because he was going after girls and having sex with girls. Uh, and he's an unmarried man. And he was just chasing down girls. I, I went to him and confronted him. He denied it. I found, got some more evidence. I went with an elder. He denied it again. And then I brought it before the whole church and excommunicated them. Most pastors... Will never do something that brave. I didn't want to do it either because I'm a baby. I'm a baby wimp. But the but I knew I had to, and I knew the Lord pushed me. Said you have to do this. I did it. I probably had five girls come after me, come up to me after service, and say, Pastor, we feel so safe in your church. We're so grateful that you would be willing to do that. And so, how do we stand against the New York City tide? It's like I don't care if you live in New York City or Jakarta. If you agree with biblical precepts, you're welcome in the family. If you think you're the arbiter of truth, then you can go somewhere else.
4: Simple as that.
0: That's beautiful. I want to I want to tie it into your book real quick. If you have a few more minutes to talk about yeah. it, yeah. In the book, one of the one of the most moving metaphors that I found laid through the whole thing. I think you just laid it out is the the difference between the, the wall and the sword. You know, and and I I wonder if you might because it sounds like. You brought both to bear in the situations. Yeah. Like, no, there is now a wall around my church, and now I have a sword. Right? Yeah, and you earned that. So I wonder if you could speak about how that shows up in the book and, and some of your philosophy and preaching in life.
3: Yeah, yeah, I try to, and, and and I know you're on the team here, Will. Like, I hope my book just reflects the scripture. I hope it doesn't reflect me too much, um, because the scripture is, the scripture is really clear. Heaven has a wall around it, and the wall is everlasting. It's ever standing. It stands into eternity. It stands for the protection against the corrupt and the wicked and the deceitful and the, and the coarse and the vain and the gross. And so um, sometimes the sword is necessary to execute justice and judgment. Uh, and then the wall gets established for those who are willing to walk in uh, the construct of justice. And if you're willing to be just and merciful and gracious and peaceful, like you'll never see the sword ever. But you will if you if you rage against the the eternal law. And that's not my idea. That's God's idea. And that is, again, revelation. That's like, you know, it's like Jesus says to those churches, I know your deeds. I know whether you raged against my way or you didn't rage against my way. And if you rage against my way, it's going to be a very painful day. The sword will drop. The fiery sword will drop. But, you know for eternity whatever that means I, I'm, I'm not sure i know totally what that means but i do know it's dangerous so the sword is the the forward offensive action against the encroachment of darkness and the kingdom of heaven and then the walls are established to maintain pace and order inside of the kingdom and so the sword sword is not necessarily used inside the kingdom and even you know when jesus is talking about gehenna that's outside of the kingdom that's you know that's that burning trash heap that's outside of the walls of jerusalem sword is exercised outside inside is beauty and peace and um you know when you get spanked you you hopefully will be be getting spanked outside um and so that's that's for our church that's balance and we try to keep that balance theologically by our members classes and Training in good theology, but the sword will be exercised if someone intentionally um, abrogates God's law in his way. And it's not complicated. Paul said to the Jerusalem Council, "They're like, hey, we want to throw all these laws on top of the new church." And he's like, "You know what? I told the drew. I told um, the the new church and the Gentiles, like, there's just three big issues. Like, don't be sexually immoral. Uh, don't." Eat food, sacrificed to idols, which essentially for our time is like these, you know, club parties. Like that was the clubs of the day. And then third, like don't eat meat with blood in it, which was like a de- like, like demonic stuff. Like don't be sexual immoral. Don't do demonic stuff like witchcraft, demonic stuff. And don't be a club. Like don't be a clubhound. Like you're going to die there. Like that's a really dangerous place for you to live. You're supposed to live in the kingdom of light. And it was very simple. And that kind of simplicity is step one, and you're in the kingdom of heaven. If you're if you're fighting with those rules, you need the sword. You need to get chopped out. Um. Anyway, I, I, it's probably more complex than that, but I think this, I think the sword establishes peace, and then the walls are erected for peace to be maintained.
0: The reason why I found that so powerful is that um, and, and is that. For men thinking about how to be masculine Christian men, right? Yeah. You can provide all kinds of examples through the Bible, but it, it to really boil it down to a metaphor like this is what we, we started out talking about. Um, Iron John and Robert Bly, like he mm-hmm. provided all these really vivid metaphors, you know, for men and masculinity through yeah. myths and poetry and stuff like that, and he just made it you could take something out of it and carry it with you forever right? Mm-hmm. And so when I, when I read the wall and the sword, it was like, oh, that's how to be a masculine Christian man by embodying, you know, in this really simple way that I could just have, you know, in yeah. my pocket, like, no, I, there's a wall and I, and I have a sword and, um, you know, you, they're both parts of me, right? Yeah. And you can experience both of them.
3: Yeah. That's Nehemiah too, right? Trowel, trowel in one hand and sword in the other. Like that's what Nehemiah was having his builders of the wall do, because they need to Defend the wall with a sword while building the wall, so they had a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. That sounds like a book that you should probably write about the trowel and the sword.
0: I can do that. <laughs> we'll check back in if you, I just have I have a couple more questions if that's okay, I don't want to keep yeah. you too long. Okay, yeah. cool. so I want to read a, I want to read a passage to you from a book that I, that I really really like that I'd like you to yeah. comment on. This is chapter six Heaven, Heaven has a wall. Oh, America has become a curse in the mouth, a twisted blasphemy concocted in the cauldrons of secular academia. That nation hatred poison was then injected into the apple of our cultural critiques in film music and media, and finally consumed by our unwitting polity, uh, polity unknowingly shaming the sacrifice of fathers and brothers who shed blood for this rare land of freedom. Like, yes. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's
3: like, I don't call my dad Bob right? Like if I, if I walk into my dad, if I walk my dad's, you know, in his mid late sixties right now, if I walked into his house uh, and I said, Hey, what up, Bob? What up? Bobby B literally try to fight me. And I'm I'm not even joking, but literally try to fight. You deserve it. I would deserve it. He should try to fight me. Um, And I should just put my arms down so he can punch my face in, you know, there's something like, like naming things is significant. Bob Dylan wrote this song, "God, you know, man gave names to all the animals in the beginning, you know, a long time ago, and man is gifted by God in Genesis the ability to name things, and with a name, we establish the value of a thing. Something funny about, like Second Samuel, you have Mephibosheth, which means "to breathe shame." And you have Ishbosheth uh his father which means man of shame and you're just like what who is who is right who is giving these names out you know mm. and i don't know if i don't know if it, i i haven't seen a, seen a solution on this I, I wonder if like the idea was like that they would reject the name and it would be such a force in their life that they would strive against it i i'm not i'm not sure why peterson uh jordan peterson says. The, the, the scriptures etymologically cognate, which means like the words themselves have a cognition, and that's true even from his secular perspective, because we know that John one one says, you know, in the beginning the word was, the word was with God, the word was God, all things were created through Him, without Him nothing was made, that was made and in Him was the light, and the light was the light of men, and like and, and like the word itself has power and life in, in it. Cognition is an idea of like the, the infusion of ideas and, and um, uh, 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 the mind coming together and creating this synergy of, of beauty and, and thought and brilliance. Um, I, think, I think naming is really important. So when you say, when you shame the name of your nation, when you call it Murica, when you intentionally associate it with the despicable of your country. And I grew, up in the, I grew up in the Catskill Mountains. And the Catskills, I, I, I'm sure there's, there's academic uh, support for this, but the, Cats, the Catskills are kind of in the northern tip of the Appalachians. And there's all kinds of lunatic drug issues and poor people. And we, I, I, we were the second poorest co- county of New York State. Bronx County was the poorest. Delaware County, where I grew up, was the second poorest. My brother Donald died of a heroin overdose. Like, I know poor, pathetic America. I know that and when you when you connotate the name of your nation with something gross there's intentionality behind that and so just like america has been denigrated father has been denigrated you know dad has been denigrated um you know the 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 name the, the, the people don't call their dad's father anymore like the name has been diminished the power and influence has been diminished and when you really Honor a thing or something, you change the name of that thing or something. When a man really loves his wife, he doesn't just call her by her name. He has names of endearment: babe, honey, love, beauty. Like you add, uh, you add labels that 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 represent the affection, the effectuating. You, you effectuate uh, uh, the end- the the your the intention of your heart upon a person by the label you place upon them which is um what god does to us um but that's something that we do and we're called to do and that's you know that heaven has a wall section i I just talk about like the destruction of our nation and the tearing down of the wall of the value of our nation and that happens first in language and then it moves from language and that's why like forced language the whole peterson stuff like forced language is an abomination like like one of the things i hate will and i'm sure you're with me on this is like uh are you a he him like you're you're forcing some kind of you're forcing the deconstruction of binary sexuality upon me because if you change language, you can change the entire world.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And language is incredibly powerful, and it, it is one of the things that establishes the walls for our homes, and our cities, and our nation. And, and Wittgenstein, and da da da, all that kind of stuff. You know, God, made God, <laughs> Jesus is the Word. Do we need any other? Do we need any other evidence that the Word, that our words are powerful than John one one and two? I don't think so. I think that's sufficient.
0: Yeah, Jesus meets Simon. He's like, I think I'm going to call you Peter. Well, I like you. I'm going to call you Peter.
3: I'm going to change your whole destiny by renaming you.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's a real thing. Well, just, okay, so just, I want to be respectful of your time. So just one last question. I want to talk a little bit about Revelation, because I know you've been giving a series on Revelation, and, and, I, and I heard a series of messages, and, and someone said recently, I can't remember who it was, like, the most important books, they're all, all the books of the Bible are important, but if you really want to know the books that, that uh, Satan hates the most, Genesis and Revelation. Right. And I was like, oh, that's a really interesting idea. So Revelation I haven't gotten to it yet, but I wonder yeah. if you could share it cuz it's probably it's probably the most it's not one of the most if not the most misunderstood book in the Bible. I wonder if you could share a little bit of that Fair. and I'll to send people to it.
3: Sure is. Well, so far we've we're uh, I don't know how many weeks we are. I think we're we're 12 or f- 12 or so weeks into Revelation. We're we're still in chapter 3. So, um, I'd like to deep dive. I am hungry for the truth and the, the 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 commentary i have is by a gentleman named gk beale So gk beale wrote a commentary that was like two thousand pages long is the word on and then this guy david campbell um these guys are both doctors and uh, in, uh, in, in theology david campbell said and he said he felt literally like the lord told him Take the two thousand page commentary and break it down and make a simple version. So this commentary is called the shorter commentary Re- revelation. It's five hundred pages, and I just, I, I frankly have been have been studying through it. Um, I will say there's a lot of bizarre jargon, and I don't know about you, Will, but like whenever you get too deep into jargon, like I feel like like, like Jesus didn't use jargon the scriptures jesus like you read jesus's word in the gospels and in revelation there is zero jargon and and if you don't know what this if you're listening jargon doesn't mean complexity or confusion jargon the definition of jargon is words that are um they 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 clarify or simplify larger complex so if i use the word Dualism, and I'm talking about Rene Descartes, which is Cartesian philosophy. And I use the word dualism. Everybody that's been in the philosophical uh, uh, of that philosophical space, they know that I mean mind versus body, or physical versus spiritual. And so the word contains a lot of different ideas and arguments that are compacted into it. But whenever people use lots of jargon, Um, they're they first of all I think they conflate the issues, but also they just confuse uh, the normal hearer, and so Jesus doesn't use that. He uses very simple terms, and simple terms are a way that we can access truth. Because it doesn't matter how complex the argument, it doesn't matter how the smart the lawyer is. The juror, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but like the member of the jury is a guy from the plumbing that works as a plumber. And the other member is like, she is like at the laundromat and then there's the other person who's like an accountant, like lawyers bring complicated uh, concepts and make them very simple for people. And revelation by pastors and by scare tacticians have made revelation very complex and confusing. And I think they've done it to fill their pews. And they've said, Jesus is coming back in 30 seconds. And if you don't believe me, you know, you're going to be doomed. And you're, you're like, you probably grew up like me. I don't know, Will, maybe you grew up like me. You're like, I'm not going to get married. I'm not going to get a license. I'm, Jesus is coming back every second. I'm terrified for my whole life. Mm. So what does that mean for revelation? That means revelation was only relevant. It's, it was written 2000 years ago, and it's only re- relevant for right now. That's nonsense. Mm. It's insane to think that Revelation was written and canonized by the power of the Holy Spirit and is only for the year 2020. No, it's not. It was written for the church from Jesus' death and resurrection to us now to communicate to us the power of the beauty of God, uh, the sovereignty of his will over creation, the partnership of mankind inside of that will and his divine power and glory over the universe and all of eternity, for all of mankind. And so my understanding of Revelation is just simply this. It's for all of us, for all of time. And guess what? Jesus is not coming back tomorrow. Sorry if you think so. And if you think he is, I'll, I, will, I will write a contract right now. I'm a lawyer. I'll write a contract right now, and I'll bet you all of your life savings that he's not coming back tomorrow.
0: No, probably not.
3: I don't think anyone's going to take me up on that wager, right? Because it's, soon and very soon, you can't say soon and then say, well, I'm really, I meant 2,000 years. That means much of Revelation was fulfilled because Jesus literally said, There are those of you here today that will see the fulfillment. They will not die before these things come to pass. He literally said that. So much of that apocalyptic language is filled. In and before 70 AD, and much of the rest of it will be fulfilled in the grand consummation of all things. And so, like, what does that mean for us? That means we have this incredible, glorious pursuit of Jesus, who is the Alpha and Omega, beginning of the end. He has the stars of heaven in his right hand. That means he rules over all of the cosmic elements. Symbolism of Revelation is profound and incredible. and, it, and, and my buddies who I, I love, God bless them, are just like, ah, Iran's getting nuked. That means Jesus is coming back tomorrow. I've been hearing that story my entire life. And it's made me afraid and scared. But the message that Jesus is in control of the whole universe and he's playing out you know, all of the universe and he's asking me to be faithful to his testimony, that makes me want to take over. That makes me want to dominate for his kingdom. And will the bad guys win? Ultimately, definitely not. I mean, that's definitely what does not happen. The bad guys definitely do not win ultimately. How exactly will that symbolism play out? You get to not know. Mm -hmm. Because Jesus said, you know, (laughs) the angels don't know. The son doesn't know. But only the father knows the times and seasons. So you don't get to say, oh, America's America's going to end that means it's the end of the world no nope, sorry the world doesn't end in you know if you're a biblical literist which i tend to i tend towards the world doesn't end in 6,000 AD. sorry doesn't happen that way i just, just this is wrong on, on, on the numbers if if i were to guess i would say christianity will pass to china i would i i will say this christianity started in jerusalem and it's been spreading its way around the world it went from jerusalem Rome to uh, to Western Europe to United States. We'll pass to China, Russia, and then we'll go back to Jerusalem, and God will consummate all things. And that will take some significant amount of time. Maybe I'm wrong, and if I'm wrong, well, we'll find out. You know, if Jesus comes back in five minutes, I think that's bad theology. I think if we strive for America to be righteous, our homes to be righteous, our families to be righteous. God can play out the rest of the elements of the universe. The guys that are, the guys that are trying to win you by fear, I, I just don't, I don't buy it, man. I don't buy it. So if you get deep into the scripture and you interpret the scripture by the scripture, you interpret revelation by revelation, you interpret revelation by Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah, uh, it's hard to say, you know, well, when Iran gets the nukes, stop, Jesus is coming back tomorrow. It's just stupid. It's literally stupid. Like, oh, well, what about the Christians in the 1500s? What were they supposed to be doing with that scripture? Nothing? No. Prophecy is cyclical. It applies in cycles to all peoples and all times in a cyclical fashion. How do we know that? Because Isaiah says, God, your word is like water that falls down upon the mountains and it goes into, you know, and then it it does not return void. What does it mean that like the rain comes down from mountains, Isaiah? it goes back up to the clouds and it repeats itself cyclically that's what happens to prophecy ecclesiastes was written you know 3000 years ago 3500 years ago that which was will be again and that's what that what is will you know that which was will be again or what will, will be now and that which is now will be again because the patterns of the universe that god created are not random they're patterns and if we can understand that we can live in security and peace and not be terrified that nicholas cage is going to take a flight somewhere that we're going to be on and we're all going to be raptured and the plane's going to crash into the ocean like that's nonsense that's stupid Uh, anyway that's that's where we're at in revelation right now i'm about to leave the, the the churches and jump into um the rest of the book of revelation but I believe that Revelation is written to the church. Uh, the statistics say it's the, least, um, it's the least preached book by pastors because they're afraid to preach it, and it's the most desired to be preached about uh, book by parishioners. They want to understand what it says. If you understand Revelation, Will, it is like literally reading Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel. It is a prophetic book representing God and his judgment and his promises to his people that's what it is if you get that you get it if you don't get it you're gonna gonna you know you're gonna say obama is the antichrist it's like is obama the antichrist kind of (laughs) he's antichrist and he's a leader of a country yeah but it doesn't mean that you're going to be thrown in prison tomorrow and that the antichrist is going to come back and you're going to be like burned in the eyes with coals like Like, yes, he's standing against God and he brought homosexual to America, homosexuality to America, unlike any other president before him. That's definitely Christ. But he's not the final consummation of all things. I think we have significant time for that. And that should give believers the impetus and um, uh, inspiration to spread the gospel to all nations, make a lot of money, buy churches, destroy the works of the devil, like, be a hero, swing your sword. Like stop thinking you're going to be raptured tomorrow. Get your sword out and kill bad guys. Be a hero. That's what we hope to be communicating through revelation.
0: That's fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. That was like the book ends, like I, I think that's good because the book ends of the of the, the the way that you started out and the way you finished is just like it's perfect. <laughs> like sure. I got a big I got a big <laughs> smile on my face. Thank you. Thank you so much, Pastor David. Man, yeah. that was that was amazing. Oh yeah, oh for sure.
3: Good man. Well, thanks, Will. I mean, um, I appreciate your show. Appreciate you reading, and obviously, God gave you an intellect to be able to dive into this stuff and encourage other men. Not just encourage them, but equip them. And and you're clearly doing that. So, thanks for having me on. I appreciate you, man, and, and keep swinging it. Keep swinging the sword. God's got you know each for each of us men. He's got a field for us to protect and defend love our wives and kids and be the heroes of our homes and our churches. And, and, and I, I'm willing, I don't need to be famous. I don't need to be on another show ever. I want to be the hero of my wife and my children and hold my sword. You know, that's it. That's enough. That that's enough for a man. So let's do that. Right.
0: Let's do that. Well, where can, where can people go to find out more about, uh, about you and what you do?
3: Well, I, I mostly communicate through Instagram. It's kind of sporadic. Sometimes I get crazy on it, but my Instagram, Englehart uh, underscore ESQ. Our, uh, our church is kcnyc.org, and we have, we're getting close to like 10,000 listeners a month, which is good, I think. And then we're going to be on radio throughout New York City and then starting to spread um, what I call the Orthodox historic Christian perspective with a lower C charismatic Emphasis, which just means that we believe that God still rocks and rolls today. Um, so so Instagram, podcasts, Spotify, all of those places. And then if you haven't read it, I'm not trying to like I'm not trying to make money off of this. I don't make any money off of this. This is just goes to the church. But my book, Good Kills, I think it's pretty good. And so I'd encourage mm-hmm. you to read it and and share it. Not because like it's gonna help me. I, I already wrote it, but it may help you deal with the issues of today. And if it does. Like, well, that's a win for both of us because, because we both get to stand on, on God and his word and, and be strengthened in it. So I would say those, those three places are our website, get the book. And then my Instagram, if you feel like following me, then, then cool.
0: Amazing. Yeah. I'll send everyone, I'll send everyone that, that direction. And I would like to second the recommendation for Good Kills. Thank you so much, Pastor David. And, uh, and, uh, appreciate this entire conversation, this podcast. Thanks, Will.
3: Thanks for having me on, man. Appreciate you. Appreciate what you're doing. Keep doing it, man. Keep having great guests and encouraging men.